Thank you. What a blessing it's been today to gather. To gather as the body of Christ in this place and to lift our voices as one. You know, we, we got to sing together. We got to, to praise God together. And, and I thank you for your participation and for your engagement in that choir and orchestra. Thank you for leading us because this is the one place in my life that I can sing to the loudest. And nobody can hear, but I get to be a part of it, you know? And, and it's great that we get to, to praise God and worship Him together. I think by this, all the world will know that we are His disciples as we worship together, as we come together in one body, the body of Christ. I pray that God will continue to speak to us and, and nurture and minister to us as we begin by opening His Word and as we begin a new worship series called To Love One Another. I know that you, you won't be surprised. I know we've already mentioned it, but today is game day in Norman. Are you ready? Ready or not, here it comes. Game day, those six or seven days of the year, are considered by some to be the most blessed days in Norman and by others to be the most, well, frustrating days in Norman. For you see, the streets are jammed, the restaurants are overflowing, and 86,000 people are trying to make their way downtown to the stadium to watch the game. As I tell my friends when they come into Norman, if you don't want to do game day in Norman, then stay home. Or wait till the game starts and then you've got the town to yourself. We even have a policy at this church. No weddings on game day. As we mentioned before and earlier, today is a historic day in the sense that today is the first Sunday game day in school history. Some will choose not to attend today because of their religious convictions. Others will accommodate and adjust their schedules so that they can be present and participate in the life of the community and the life of the university. And because of this historic day, I believe that we as the church, as the body of Christ, have an opportunity to step back and to reflect and even to review and evaluate our own faith commitment. It was a powerful experience for me. I, I'll never forget, I was doing university ministry at First Baptist in Waco, and we took a group to a, it was a, a, a university conference uh, at Fort Worth at the Tarrant County Convention Center. There were about 10,000 college students and as we began to gather in from across the state, maybe even some from Oklahoma, the crowd got a little restless waiting for the conference to begin. And so sure enough, you begin to hear the different sections from the auditorium begin to kind of give a little home crowd spirit. We heard a little Sikkim Bears and Go Cougs and that t whatever Texas says. They, they were there too. <laughs> and... It was fascinating to watch because we got there late. We were on the top row. But we began to see it, all these crowds and, and the intensity and the passion began to rise as the different schools would, would offer their, 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 their game cries and, and their fight songs and whatever else 
came to, came to mind, and it was kind of exciting. And like I said, the energy filled the room. And then all of a sudden, before the conference began, a few minutes before the worship and announcements were to begin, the speaker walked out onto the platform and got everyone's attention. And he said, You know, I hope our Lord receives as much enthusiasm and excitement in our worship today as we've shown our schools. And I think that's a truth that really penetrated me and, and, and caused me to, to reflect. You know, I think God celebrates along with us when we celebrate the communities of our lives, but never at the stake or the consequences of worshiping those communities, those schools, those activities more than the Lord because we, the Bible has a name for that. It's called idolatry. And we certainly don't want to be about idolatry. As you may be aware, this is the 150th year of college football. If, if you're a college football fan, it's been on all the, the different uh, pregame stuff and the commercials and things like that. I, I was fascinated the other day. I got to watch the tail end of ESPN's piece on college football, 150 years. And I was drawn into one of the last sections of that piece was called Transcendence. And a man by the name of Eric Selbo, who wrote Game Day in God, began to speak of the transcendence of college football. He said college football is about being a part of something that's greater than yourself. It's an institution where religious sentiments and feelings are experienced. Campus is a sacred place. The stadium and the fields where the games are played are sacred spaces. Parentheses, how many schools have a, a Heisman Park where they put statues up to memorialize, immortalize maybe even, those great players of the past? Game time is sacred time. The rituals surrounding game day are sacred. Gosh, remember the, the Terrells. Remember, Robbie was in the band. I know that. Oh, the band got a new band director. He wasn't from around here. And what was the first thing he did? He wanted to change the pregame. <laughs> he didn't make it past about the second or third game, and he was gone. <laughs> because why? He messed with a ritual. And for those of you to begin, the first 25 minutes are the best part of the whole experience. Because why? Because it speaks of community and of life together. During games, we experience transcendence. We get, become so immersed in the moment that we forget about ourselves. We become part of something that's greater than ourselves. We become part of a community. Sociologists tell us that every healthy society needs those moments when we transcend our unique roles, our specializations. We transcend our positions, our status or lack of status, and we come together and become one with one another. And you go to a college football game and it doesn't matter if the, the people around you are, are PhDs or high school dropouts. It doesn't matter if they're, they're professional white collar or they're blue collar. None of that matters because we become one together. 
Sports and college football provide the connection of community for many. It's the place where sacrifice is celebrated. Loyalty and ritual are practiced. We participate in the congregation, in the, in the audience. We participate with the players, believing that we are actually part of the outcome. And we celebrate the victory as it's our victory. We mourn and grieve the losses as they are our losses. You see, we are one with each other. We are one with the players. We are one with the coaches. That the problem becomes when college football or, or any other experience or community replaces that which is of ultimate transcendence, the church. You see, it is the church. It is the body of Christ that will live forever. Not the Sooners, not the Cowboys, or any other team or organization that you're a part of. You see, it's through Jesus Christ that we are individually members of one another and that we are called in Christ Jesus to become one body, one people, united in one purpose, united in community with each other. We share sacred spaces. This is one of those sacred spaces that we share. We, we gather to worship together. We gather to do our weddings and celebrate life together. We gather to mourn our losses. We, we have our funeral services here because this is a sacred space. We share sacred traditions. We share, next week we'll be sharing in baptism. Incredible sign and symbol of our faith, a, a tradition that's been passed down through generations. We share together in the Lord's Supper as we did just a few weeks ago. These are the customs, the traditions, the rituals, the symbols that mean so much to us. We share our sacred times. I'll never forget being a part of a, a conversation at First Baptist Waco, and they, they had forever had an 11 o'clock worship service, and they were looking to move it back to 1030, and one of the sweet ladies stood up in the, in the congregation and said, oh, pastor, but, but what about all the people all over the world that know we worship at 11 o'clock? It was a sacred time for her, and it was hard to move that. But as a church, we have those sacred times. You see, worship is a sacred time when we come together and we realize that we are part of something greater than ourselves. That individually we come and we bring ourselves wholly and fully, and it adds to and it ministers to, and it enriches the body of Christ. And that's why this morning as we were singing together, I, I just thank the Lord that, that we share that and experience that as one body and one people each Sunday. We are the church, the body of Christ, worshiping and encountering the Holy God with one another. We are bound together in the love of Christ which unites and strengthens us. Today, however, we must evaluate ourselves and, and maybe 
come to that place of understanding that many people do not experience transcendence when they come to worship or gather with the body of Christ, even like they do at a football game. In fact, the ESPN article said that, that fewer and fewer people are finding those experiences of transcendence in the church and they're looking for other places and they're actually finding that at a football game. This is problematic. It speaks deeply into the church and the issues that we have and that we must address, but it also speaks into the problem of our community. It speaks into the problem of our nation for sports and football and its cousins ultimately fail and leave us empty when it comes to matters of faith, of eternity, and of ultimate transcendence. So over these next weeks, I want us to, to explore and to look at this problem. You see, as a church, we must increasingly understand why our culture rejects and sees us so often as irrelevant and unnecessary. I believe that the heart and the root of the matter that we as a church face, that the, the church of Christ universal faces in this nation is a matter of love. You see, the scripture is clear. The world will know that we are his disciples, that we are his followers by the way we love one another. Now, now you're going to have to follow me throughout here, but, but let, me, let me pause there. By the way that we love one another, not by the way we love the world, and we're going to get to that, but by the way we love one another. And the world so often looks at us and says, well, they don't even love each other. Why would we want to be a part of that group? Too often the world does not know that we are Christian because we do not give a witness of passionate love for God or for one another. But our passion overflows when Boomer Sooners played or whatever your favorite fight song is. So turn with me to Matthew 22. We want to just be here just for a few moments, but it's a passage that if you're not familiar with, I want to encourage you to be, become familiar with. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. It's the passage sometimes called the passage of the great commandment or the two great commandments. Again, Jesus is being confronted. His, his, his teachings have begun to stir and have begun to create issues for those that listen and begin to follow Him. And the religious leaders of the day are, are, are beginning to, to experience that tension with Jesus, beginning to push back a little bit. And so they come to Jesus and they ask the question, Jesus, what is the great commandment? What's the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus answers, he tells them what they already know. But then he says there's a second one that's like it, that's related to it, that maybe flows from the first. The first is that we love God. We love God with all that we are, with every ounce of, of breath and of passion, of energy and enthusiasm for life. We are to love God. And the second like it is that we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Now the implication there is that we love God first because God loves us. God created us in His own image. 
And because each one of us are created, formed, and shaped by God in His image, God loves us. And we're reminded that we're to love God above all. Because why? Because we're not God. And you're not God either. But there is a God. We are called to worship that God and to love that God with all that we are. And out of that relationship and out of that experience of loving God, then guess what? We can love ourselves. Because we're created in the image of God. And, 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 and if you'll examine yourself or maybe some insight into others, those people that have the hardest time loving others are those folks that don't love themselves. Because we need to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. If we, if we can't love ourselves, we can't love our neighbor. And our love for self has to be founded in our love for God. And the recognition and realization that we are created in His image. And then we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And we can love our neighbor for the same reason that God loves us, right? Because our neighbor is created in the image of God just as we are. And because our neighbor is created in the image of God, we must love them and care for them as well. The great commandment, love God with all that we are. Love yourself because you're created in the image of God. Love your neighbor because your neighbor too is created in the image of God. We must love them for the same reasons that we love ourselves. Now this is not a, a Jesus idea. It's not a New Testament idea. This is, this is teaching throughout the Old Testament. Le Leviticus 19 verse 18 says that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. That, that's way back into the law. But Jesus is reminding us of these two great commandments. And in Matthew 5, 43, that's the, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins to, to, to mess with that definition and understanding when He says this. Well, you've heard it said, you know Jesus is about to meddle when he says this, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor. Well, yeah, that's what the law said. That's what we've read for, that's what the whole Old Testament tells us to do. But then Jesus says, but you love your enemy. Uh-oh. Well, we want to love our neighbor. Well, no, Jesus says, well, yeah, you need to love your neighbor, but you also need to love your enemy. Jesus is up to something. He's, he's about to transform and revolutionize the way we understand and love one another. You see, we can't fully love ourselves if we don't love God, and we can't fully love our neighbor if we don't love ourselves. But then the question becomes, because Jesus says you've got to love your enemy too, and so the question is, what's being transformed is this idea of, well, who's my neighbor? This was before Mr. Rogers, so we didn't know who our neighbor was. Okay? Luke 10, verses 25 through 37 is the story of the Good Samaritan. Again, Jesus is asked by these religious leaders, Okay, we're supposed to love everyone. We're supposed to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, Jesus. Okay, okay. Well, tell us who our neighbor is. And here's the key. Here's what we need to understand as we would read that story and understand that beautiful and powerful story. The intent and purpose of the religious leaders was to do this. Okay, Jesus, we know we need to love our neighbor, but tell us who our neighbor is. In other words, we want to make that circle as small as possible. 
We want our neighbor to be limited so much that we can do it. And so the question is asked, okay, Jesus, tell us who our neighbor is. Help us to draw the box so that we can love our neighbor. And Jesus' answer, as, as it always is, is brilliant. Jesus doesn't say, well, let me tell you who, who your neighbor is so that you can define that and redefine that as small as possible. Jesus says this, your neighbor is anyone that needs a help. <laughs> your neighbor is anyone that needs a neighbor. And so Jesus is answering that question in a way that, that expands the, the definition and answer of who your neighbor is. So even if someone who's your enemy is hurting and has a great need, he's your neighbor now. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus blows up this idea, this confining, restrictive definition of who your neighbor is to say anyone Anyone who needs a neighbor, that's who your neighbor is. Who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is the one who needs my help. So Jesus is radicalizing and revolutionizing our understanding of what it means to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So now let's turn to, to John chapter 13. And John 13 will be our theme and our focal verse as we've already read together for these next several weeks. Now, remember the setting here. It's John chapter 13. Jesus and His disciples have gone to the upper room. They, they're sharing in the Passover. Now, Judas knows that he's in the midst of betraying Jesus. In fact, Jesus is aware too. and Jesus is going to dismiss Judas in just a few moments to go and, and betray and carry out the betrayal, but only Jesus and Judas are aware of what's going on. And as they begin to gather in that room, there's something missing. And what's missing is that, that the disciples are unclean. They're ceremonially unclean, but there's, there's no servant, there, there's no slave around to, to wash the feet of those that are there because that was the work of the servant. And Jesus girds himself and he gets a towel and he gets a basin of water and he goes and he washes the feet of the disciples. Even the feet of G Judas. And after he finishes... Jesus says to them, do you know what I've done for you? I've given you an example. An example that you would do as I would do. And then in verse 33 and 34, Jesus says, uh, 34 and 35, Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, Jesus, what does it mean to love one another? Well, well it means that you wash each other's feet. It, it means you do what needs to be done. And Jesus says earlier in that story, in verses 13 and 14, 
Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you, you are right, for so I am. If I, then the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also do as I did to you. Jesus is showing us and giving us an example of what it means to love one another, to love the church, to love those fellow disciples. And then, as we just read in verse 34, Love one another as I have loved you. Now it's interesting here that Jesus calls this a new commandment. Well, I thought we were already supposed to love one another. What's new about this commandment? What's new about what Jesus says here? A new commandment I give you that you love one another. And what Jesus said earlier when referring to the law when He said, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the standard changes with the new commandment. Listen to what Jesus says. Did you catch it? Verse 34. Love one another as I have loved you. Wow. We are no longer to love one another as we love ourselves. Did you get that? Now, as His followers, as His disciples, the bar has been raised. And we are now called to love one another as Christ loved us. You mean washing each other's feet, doing the dirty work for each other, serving each other. Yeah, that's what it means. And Jesus continues in, in the Gospel of John to, to minister and pour into His disciples here in this, these last moments before they make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And turn with me, if you would, to chapter 15. And look at verse 13. Actually, we're going to start in verse 12. Jesus says, this is My commandment. It's, it's the same dialogue. It's the same conversation that's going on this is my commandment. Which commandment is that? Well, it's the one he just told us, right? It's the new commandment that we love one another as he loved us, as he loves us. And so Jesus is restating, this is my commandment. It's the new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. We saw the foot washing, but now look what happens next. Greater love has this than no, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. This greater love, this new standard of love, the way that we're to love one another, now, Jesus defines as laying down our life for our friends, laying down our life for one another. And then you know what Jesus went and did? He laid down his life. For us, remember a couple of weeks ago we were in in John 10. We were looking at the the, the Psalm of the the Good Shepherd in Psalm 23, and, and and making that link to Jesus as the Good Shepherd in John 10. You remember that passage? If not, go back and read that passage in in John 10. And what does Jesus say in John 10? He says, "I am the Good Shepherd, and I lay down my life for my sheep. No one, no one takes it from me." So Jesus is preparing us, 
Preparing us to understand this new commandment that we love one another, not as we love ourselves, but now we love one another as Jesus loved us. And He has given us that example. He's told us beforehand that He's going to lay down His life. He's shown us beforehand that we're to wash one another's feet. And isn't it fascinating and interesting that He says in verse 14, You are My friends. If you do what I command you, well, what did you just command us to do? Well, I I commanded you to love one another as I have loved you. This is the work of the disciple and follower of Christ. So the question, church, that we must answer and ask is what does it look like when we love one another? Our scripture reading earlier in the service, the, the one and other passages of the New Testament illustrate and put into action what it means to love one another. You see, love is more than a noun. Love is more than an emotion and a feeling. I've, used, I've said many times that love is one of the most misunderstood and misused words in the English language. For love is a verb. It's an action. Love is demonstrable. Love is authenticated as we practice and act it out in our relationship with God and with one another. According to Jesus, love is when we wash one another's feet or when we lay our lives down for another. So over these next weeks, we are going to look at these one another passages. We're going to discover what it looks like to love one another. On your bulletin cover, notice the the front of it. What does it mean to love one another? What does that look like in real life? As we look through the rest of the New Testament, we're going to see that to love one another means to restore one another. It means to pray for one another. It means to comfort one another and serve one another. It means to submit to one another. It means to forgive one another. Love is an action. And these are our our beautiful pictures and truths and teachings of what it looks like to wash one another's feet and to lay our lives down for each other. Why? Why in these last moments of His life is Jesus so focused on this new commandment, on His commandment? As we continue to read in verse 35, the answer follows, so that the world will know we are His disciples if we have love for one another, so that the world will know that we are His disciples, so that the world will want to be one of His disciples. You see, the distinguishing mark or characteristic of Christ followers in this world is our love for one another. Our love for one another is to be attractional. People should want to be one of His disciples because they see how His disciples love and lay down their lives for one another. Yet again, many of our churches are known by their unforgiveness, their unkindness, their exclusiveness, and their hypocrisy. The culture around us has fled the church because we have not loved one another as Christ loved us. And they have found love and community in many different places. Even at football games. Morgan, our oldest daughter, was, I think she was a sophomore at Baylor. She was in the Baylor band, and it was the last year of games at Floyd Casey Stadium before Baylor opened up their new 
stadium. And so we had gone down. I think it was one of the, the last or next to last games. It may have been the last game at Floyd Casey. And we had gone down. And, and I think uh, Gay's mom and dad, Gay's dad's a graduate of Baylor. I think we had the whole family and gone down to, to watch Morgan in the band and, and celebrate that with her. And for some reason, I think everyone went off to, to go get their seats. I was kind of left waiting on the band. They did a, a little, like OU, they do kind of a pregame outside the stadium. And I was waiting to, to see her and to, to celebrate that with her. And, and so they came, they stood there by the, the stadium and all the, the fans gathered around. And I'm trying to peek through and wave and, and the Baylor band's playing. I'm clapping, sickle bears and all that. And people start looking at me, weird. I didn't mention it was the OU game I was at. <laughs> so I've got my OU stuff on. And, uh, and I'm playing and sickle bears and, and all that. And people are looking at me. The next year, Baylor came here. And so they, uh, for whatever reason, they, they put the band up. Remember the, the old, wow, how old are we now? The old South End, right? The, the scoreboard went way up to the top. Well, the Baylor band was like right on the last two rows. And so we sit in the north end zone, and so I made my way over to, to her, and, and I was supposed to kind of meet, I was wanting to meet the band and greet them, so I think I had a, 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 a beige with OU on it, and I took that off. I, had a, I maybe was wearing a green underneath it, a Baylor shirt or something, so I could greet, the, I didn't want to greet the band and make them run away or hate my daughter. So, uh, so anyway, so... We, we greeted them, I went up and found them, and, and uh, Morgan came down, and I got her a drink, and we were visiting, gave her a hug, and, and I had my, at that time, I had my, I put my OU shirt back on, and I had my Baylor hat on, and this guy came up to me, OU guy, and says, you look really confused today. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm not confused. You see, I'm just part of two communities that I deeply love. But more importantly, I'm part of the body of Christ. And I am commanded to love each of you in such a way that the world will know that we are His disciples. So how does this new commandment and this great commandment go together? Let me offer these thoughts before we go. To love one another, which is what we're going to explore over these next weeks. To love one another means that I am called and created to love God with all that I am. And that I can and must learn to love myself, not just because I'm created in the image of God, but because God loved me so much that He sent His Son to die for me and to transform and to change me. And so I can love God because, love myself because if God loves me enough to do that, then surely I can learn to love myself. And lastly, I can love my neighbor as Jesus loves me. I can love you as Jesus loves me, which means that I must learn how to wash your feet and how to lay my life down for you. What does that mean for us as a church? Not just individually. What does it mean for us as a church? Well, it means that the church, that we together as a community of faith, that we together are to love God with all that we are. Everything that we're about ought to be to reflect God's love for us and our love for Him. 
Secondly, it means that the church, that we are to love each other. Get that? We are the love your, love, love your neighbor as yourself. We're the yourself there. We're the body of Christ. We must love each other because Christ died for us and because He loves each member of us. And then the church, that's us. We must learn to love our neighbor, our community, our world as we love ourselves. And why is that? So that all the world will know that we're His disciples and know that God loves them and that God invites them into a saving relationship. We are to love one another so that the world will know and come to Him. Let's pray. As we begin our time of response this morning, the first question that we must ask is, are you a follower of Christ? Have you come to that place where you've recognized that God created you in His image and that God loves you and that He gave His Son for you and that even in the midst of your sinfulness, even in the midst of your rebellion and turning against God, that God sent His Son to die for you? The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Have you come to that place where you've accepted that gift? You'll never learn to love God and you'll never learn to love yourself until that truth becomes real, would you allow Him to forgive you and to restore you, to save you today? And secondly, as a follower of Christ, does the world testify that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ because of the way you love His church, His body? Does the world know that you are His disciple? by the way that you love His church. And then church, are we committed to loving our neighbor as we love ourselves?